I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Julie Bowditch is an advancement officer for UMass Medical School. In addition to her work for CASA Project Worcester, where we are today, Julie has served on a number of local boards, including Diamond in the Sky and the Young Professional Women's Association. Thank you. Like a diamond. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about that because that was a board you founded, right? Uh, I was one of the founding board members, yeah. That's amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And where are we here today? Can you tell us about yes. CASA? Yes. So we are in the CASA Project's offices on Grove Street in Worcester. And this is where uh, all of the behind-the-scenes magic happens at CASA. Um, CASA, for I think a lot of people don't know, and in fact, um, if you were to Google us, you may come up with some housing options for the city, which is a, a big point of confusion, I know. Um, but actually, CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. So um, that is what CASA does. They um, help connect advocate, volunteer advocates with cases that are, are um, needed, court cases um, in, in family court that are needed for kids who are in DCF custody. So how did you get involved in CASA? So another board member of ours, Erin Jansky, who you know well, she actually introduced me to the opportunity to be on the board, um, and she knew that my history includes um, when I was growing up, and actually to this day, my parents are foster parents here in Worcester County. Um, They have been foster parents in mainly in Worcester County, but also previously in New Hampshire for over 30 years. So they have had um, triple digits foster kids over the years, yes, so... It kind of came naturally to me. All my siblings are adopted, several from DCF. So Erin knew that that was something that was important to me in a more general sense and that this was a way that I could, you know, really get involved kind of like on a more granular level with kids who are in the system and um, and looking for some some permanence and stability um, and so forth. So so I jumped at the chance. I think she, she knew she had a... Um, uh, a a good uh, chance at that (laughs) when she approached me. So I'm very glad she did. Well, I think we both have been struggling to figure out how to say no to things lately. Yes. (laughs) And it sounds like you figured out like the ones that you really want to dig in with are things that speak to you personally and your personal history. Exactly. It is hard to say no. And actually, um, without digressing too much, it is a topic that uh, I talk a lot, or I think a lot about and talk to people a lot about when they're saying what sort of opportunities should I get involved in and when should I say no versus when I should say yes. And, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer that in a society where they're saying, you know, say no, say no, say no, that it's okay to say yes, um, especially to things that you care about. Don't You don't want to overcommit and you, you, know, you don't want to get into things that, you know, you, you can't really maybe fully give back on, but, um, I'm a, I'm a big believer in say yes. So, um, you know, there are periods in life when you have to say no to things for various reasons. And fortunately for me, I'm in a, a phase in my life where I can say yes to a lot of things that, um, that's, that do matter to me. So, so yeah, so I was able to say yes to Casa and I'm glad, I'm glad I did. It's interesting. You spoke a little earlier before we started recording about the number of volunteers and like the quality of volunteers that Casa has. And at the same time, um, you mentioned that you talked about this cause to a lot of people. Like, I didn't realize that that was like a thing that existed, right? Like, I knew that foster parenting existed and foster families existed. Um, so how do you or how does CASA really get kind of their word out and how do you build that foundation of volunteers? You know, that's a good question. I know that we do a lot of events sort of corporate, you know, go into um 
into organizations or companies and talk about what we do. And it will usually turn out, you know, some interest in terms of volunteering. Obviously, it's a big commitment to volunteer. So it's not for everyone. And, you know, we want to be very transparent about that. We don't want people to start getting involved in it and then realize, oh, you know, maybe I can't really fully commit to it. So um, I know that they spend a lot of time talking to even like senior centers, um, which, you know, we do have a, a fair amount of retired volunteers that a lot of retired educators, which is, you know, a very logical um, kind of segue, I guess. But um, and then also, you know, chamber events, those type of networking things where we really have a chance to, I think it's something that everyone, it's a compelling type of mission, right? So it's not a tough sell. I think it's more, it's more what you said, Molly. It's, it's people don't know what is it cost is doing? How can you help? You know, and it's not like, it's not something where you can just, you know, do something once a month or, um, you know, show up and, you know, help with something for a couple hours. You know, it is a, significant thing. How many volunteers do you have? And then how do you become trained so that you're actually qualified to do this job? Yeah. So we have about 400 active volunteers right now. So, which is a massive amount considering the commitment that it is to become trained. You know, we screen, of course we screen all of our volunteers and we have quarterly trainings so that, you know, volunteers who are, are stepping back from what they've been doing, you know, can be replaced by new trained volunteers. And that is a 30 hour training. So quarterly, we have, have those trainings. Um, we just had one, I believe in January, and then, um, we'll have another one later in the spring we'll Have them throughout the year. And, and so those volunteers can come in and take over, um, for, for volunteers who may have to step back for whatever reason. And frankly, you know, while we're not in a position right now, we're very fortunate that, we have so many volunteers. There's also, because Worcester County is 67 towns and cities, we have, right now, we have a shortage of volunteers in North County. So we have a lot of cases in the fitchburg Leominster courts. And um, so, you know, we stretch all the way up to the New Hampshire border. And North County is an area where we are in need right now of, of volunteers. So, you know, I think a lot of it happens organically. We've, we've, been having conversations with the board and the volunteers. I think they talk about what they're doing. They care a lot about it. The staff, you know, are talking about the work they're doing. And, um, you know, Rob will tell us at board meetings, you know, we just had an upkick. We had six new volunteer applications come in this month, which is, you know, a, a large amount for what we're talking about. And, um, and we think it, a lot of it comes from, um, in fact, when Redemption Rock Brewery and Queen's Cups did the tip givebacks in January for CASA, we had a huge uptick in both engagement on social media, which we're very, very grateful for. It's obviously that type of an organization that thrives on local engagement and um, also volunteer applications. So um, that was huge for us. Hi, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Unity Mike is here. Thank you so much for taking your photos. Goodbye. Part of the way that you can bring people in on that level of volunteering is that it's a different kind of volunteering. You kind of mentioned that a little bit where it's like, some people want to volunteer for an organization they love, but they don't want to just be like in an office, like it's filing something or doing, envelopes. right. Whereas yeah. this is like a, like direct impact, impact, immediate, sure. like, and it's felt both ways. It's really important for Definitely. the child, but it's also like, it can really enrich your life. Oh, it's, the volunteers were very fortunate that 
Rob, the executive director, Rob Zargas, he um, has made it a priority to bring some of our volunteers into board meetings periodically to talk about firsthand cases that they've been working on and so forth. And it's been very meaningful to the board who may not be kind of like actually in the trenches, if you will, with these cases to hear about how fulfilling, like you said, it is to the volunteers in their lives. And, you know, obviously to hear those firsthand accounts, it's kind of just reminds you, you know, why you're there. Um, so I would, I would say, I would, everyone would probably agree that our volunteers are our lifeblood. There are, um, relative to the actual full-time staff, you've seen the space and it's small. It's all volunteers. I'm excited to hear more about fundraising from you in a few minutes, but I know storytelling is a really big part of that. And some of your volunteers are going to have a chance to tell their stories at your big event next week. Can you tell us what's in store for Mechanics Hall on Friday? Yes. So on March 6th, we are going to have our second annual Champions for Children celebration event. We are very excited for it. We've been planning for months, of course, as you can imagine. And some of our volunteer advocates that we were just talking about will be volunteering there as well, as if they don't already do enough um, to be these firsthand accounts and and people to um, engage with and meet at the event and you know they'll be wearing name badges just like the staff or committee or board members will to identify them and so that I think it's a different type of conversation that our guests can have um, with those advocate volunteers to just hear really what they're doing obviously we've been very we're, we're actually having a training in a couple of days to talk with them they're already very um, conscious of confidentiality and that sort of thing but to talk about you know these kids and families that that really their lives are being impacted positively and changed forever really because of the work they're doing so we're excited to introduce you know those advocates to our guests and vice versa yeah so I think it's gonna be an exciting night I think it'll be a great selection of food we also have a variety of dessert vendors that are donating they're not gonna be there in person but they'll be donating different types of desserts and we actually even have you saw down the hall some little goodie bags so people can take their desserts home we were we're so grateful we're so fortunate that we actually have so many donors that we realized we can't no one will be able to eat all of this in one in one event which is a great problem to have and I'm not complaining so we will have the option for little goodie bags too that's smart so yeah there's about a dozen um, hot food vendors, if you will, and then there will be um, some cold platters from our friends at Volturno and Pepper's Artful Events, and uh, and then all these bakeries. Oh, and the egg roll lady will be will uh, yes, <laughs> the egg roll lady is also donating a big old platter. So we're excited. It sounds like Sarah's wedding. I was thinking that um, she had a bunch of vendors like basically come in like our fa- some of our favorite restaurants, and it was it really was like refreshing. That was it made it extra fun because you could go through and be like, oh, I get my favorite mac and cheese from our Spiabi or right, and you get to sort of taste yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. And one of our goals with that concept, aside from just freshening things up a little bit, was we really wanted to reflect the community that we serve. So it is a large community in terms of all of Worcester County, um, geographically large, and then it's also very culturally diverse. And a lot of kids we, that we serve, you know, are come from diverse backgrounds, and we really wanted to be reflective of that. So we're extremely grateful that there is such a diverse um, group that will be serving up um, some, some special dishes for our guests. Well, there's no doubt that you are a fundraising pro and an event planning expert. (laughs) Uh, I was reading your Worcester Business Journal 40 Under 40 profile, and it said that when you started with UMass, 
you increased the fundraising program or grew it by 85%. And then you raised $2 million at the winter ball, which was an all-time high in the last decade. So what are some of the most important tips that you could give us about nonprofit fundraising, lessons that you've learned? What are the tricks of the trade? You know, that's a great question. This committee that's been planning this event is a great um, example of kind of what you're asking because a lot of them, most of them, in fact, have either never done anything with fundraising before or event planning um, or, or a few have some experience, but it's not you know necessarily their full-time gig. Um, they're talented at many other things. But so what I always tell people who are newer to fundraising, whether it's as you know interns or, or new to the field or volunteers in fundraising is just um, really it's glorified sales, right? Except we're fortunate because we get to sell something we care about, a cause instead of a product, you know, or a service. So um, in that way, I think it's it's more compelling. It's a little bit of an easier sell because if there's if it's something you believe in, I guess, like any sales, it's a lot easier to convey that in a conversation with someone. And, um, and you know, at the end of the day, it's not for you. So I think a lot of people who are, are hesitant to fundraise or say, a lot of people will say to me, Oh, I can't help with that because, you know, I, I, I don't like to ask for, for money or something. And so I always tell them, well, you, you don't have to make the direct asks. It's also about spreading, spreading the mission. It's also about just exposing new people to the organization. And sometimes, you know, those, the, the giving piece of it can happen more organically, or, you know, you, you can always tag someone in who's a little more comfortable with, with those conversations. But to me, fundraising is, is less, um, I don't want to make it sound like it, you know, it's easy or, or doesn't take a lot of work. It does, but I think, um, it's all about perspective. You know, if you just think of it as, um, you're giving someone in the community, whether it's a corporation or uh, an individual or, or what, whatever it may be, an opportunity to give back, an opportunity to be part of something that's, you know, really impacting our community and really bigger than all of us. And I feel like when you think of it that way and approach it that way, it kind of um, feels more natural and maybe a little less aggressive too. I know some people just look at it as, I can't ask for money, you know, but but it's like, well, we're, we're just giving them the opportunity to be part of something special. So, you know, it's not, it's not quite as intimidating when you think of it like that. <laughs> Yeah, I think people are really afraid of the word like development, mm. right? Like fundraise. It's fundraising, definitely. Um, right. And like you said, though, it's like you really. It's not like oh, I'm just gonna give money to buy something. It's like you're you're giving them the chance to be part of something bigger, right? right. And I always tell people who are a little bit like maybe anxious about it. You're not asking for, you know, this isn't a GoFundMe page for your vacation rental or something. Yeah. You know, this is something that you can really feel good about and, and it's not for you. So don't feel, you know, shy about, you know, saying, oh, I was hoping you could help with this. This is not for you, you know? So it's really, I think it's like maybe it helps people to relax a little bit when it comes to making those, you know, starting those conversations. And also, I don't think you have to approach fundraising as, well, I don't think you should approach fundraising as, you know, you just like, hi, I'm Julie. Can you give me money for something? You know, I think it's a relationship business. I think like many other things that we do, you know, other industries or just in life, um, it's relationship building. It's just the more you interact with people, you find out what's important to them. They find out what's important to you. And sometimes those things kind of intersect, you know, if you're looking for them too. <laughs> How do you go about finding new donors or bringing in new donors? Yeah, I think in general, it's a lot of networking. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of research. It's a lot of uh, conversations. And I think it's kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about CASA being maybe an organization that everyone isn't familiar with yet. 
Um, and I know there's a lot of other smaller nonprofits just like Casa that are in the same boat and are doing really amazing things, but they just want to get the word out there. And, you know, maybe it won't resonate with everyone, but I think there are a lot of people who it does resonate with. And whether or not you had any interaction, you know, or experience in the foster care system or the court system or um, foster parenting or anything like that, I, I just think it still is likely to be something that people are going to care about. Now, whether that translates to them becoming a volunteer or donor, who knows? But um, I think that's the way we find our donors, whether it be at UMass or at CASA or at other places, you know, where you work or volunteer. It's just kind of having those conversations and listening, really. What do people sound like they're interested in? What What's something they experience that might connect back to what you're working on? I saw that you were in special education for 10 years, was it? I was. Before you came to the world of fundraising. Yes, I hope no one's doing math. No, no. I was surprised at <laughs> I'm that. I'm always doing math. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave the math to you. That's <laughs> what I teach. Molly and I, yeah, are both educators as well. Did you become a teacher because of your experience with so many foster brothers and sisters and adopted brothers and sisters? It sounds like you had a busy house filled with kids. Definitely. I would say, interestingly enough, my career, has come full circle or my life has come full circle because I definitely became interested in special education and, um, you know, kids who might need more support out there in the world, which I know you both interact with every single day, being in education. Um, and originally that manifested in wanting to be in the schools and I worked in the private sector and the public sector for a while. And I loved what I did. I really did. But at one point I found that I was really gravitating towards some volunteer work outside of, you know, my my day job, if you will. And I know you guys can relate to that. Um, but that that was a lot of volunteer work. So as that became a more significant part of my life, I decided to take a little leap of faith and switch over full time. People who might need a little bit more help out there. That, that's what brought me to special education, but then it's also kind of what brought me to wanting to do things in the community and fundraising really is about, you know, regardless what the organization is, generally speaking, it's probably about helping someone who, who needs help. So it's just kind of interesting. And actually, until you said that, it didn't really, <laughs> really realize that it all kind of came full circle. That's, That's also why I'm here. Yeah, <laughs> is, you know, my family and we had ado- we had adopted um, a couple of kids who had significant special needs, which is, you know, not entirely unusual for, you know, kids who are in the system or or, you know, just in general. Um, so it definitely, I think, gave me a little more perspective in that sense and definitely a different comfort level or um, awareness, you know, like many educators kind of you, you just see people in a different way, I think. And, you know, start to maybe give a little more attention to people who, you know, may have a harder way finding their way from point A to point B for whatever reason. I think people who don't work in education don't um, necessarily know like what a, the skill set is. Do you think that you gain skills working as a teacher that you use now doing something yes. like seemingly totally different? Absolutely. Uh, I used to joke, um, but I'll resurrect it <laughs> when I <laughs> when I first left teaching and um, went into sort of the office life, if you will. I, I always joked like if if I, you know if I'm needing to clean up any like potty messes or something, things have gone terribly wrong. Um, but also, you know, I think that you're right. A lot of the skills that you use, um, whether it's in special education or just you know in education in general, 
um, sort of translate to how you interact with the world, if you will. Um, definitely colleagues, you know, it's, it's not really all that different, I guess. You know, I was in behavior management primarily. So you think a lot of times I'll be, um, you know, whether it's having a conversation or interaction or something, and your mind kind of goes back to that place <laughs> where you're like, oh, don't reinforce that poor behavior. <laughs> Absolutely. I I noticed it when I, I used to work part-time at a gym and I, was, I wasn't like a manager of any kind. It was like, I was there two nights a week and I was there for a long time though. And after a while they started having me be the person who like trained new employees, like not the managers. And I was like, why? And one time one of my like coworkers was like, well, you're good at like teaching people how to do things. It's you explain very, things. Yeah. And I was like, oh, but you don't realize yeah. it, right? Yeah. yeah. You don't realize you're just like, oh yeah. Like, cause I do it all the time. We, we just constantly marry. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's so t- And I think, you know, it gives you a level of patience that maybe, you know, you don't necessarily acquire in other industries. Yeah. I said that to my mom a couple of years ago. I was like, I've never like growing up, I never considered myself a particularly patient person, but like recently I'm like, I am very patient. <laughs> oh, I can definitely wow. be impatient about certain things, but there, you know, it definitely gives you that kind of, I think, um, pause or empathy or, at least, mm-hmm. you know? Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now I ended up on the library board in particular because I asked a question. I was at this Leadership Worcester seminar. I raised my hand. I asked a question about the library, and then I got a call, and they were like, hey, we would love for you to be on the library board. Okay. I ended up on the powwow committee in a similar experience. I asked a question, and they were like, it sounds like maybe you would want to be involved. (laughs) How did you end up on all these boards? And then if somebody's out there going, like, I really want to be more involved, how do they get on a board? Mm. I get asked that a lot, I think, especially from younger colleagues or um, peers, you know, who are interested in getting more involved or maybe even just becoming more visible, you know, in a sense, becoming more engaged in the community, which for whatever reasons, you know, whether it's professional, personal and so forth. And um, I think what you said is spot on. It's like recruiting 101 is half of it, right? If you're just at the right place at the right time and you show a glimmer of interest, then whoever is looking for help will kind of notice you right away and be drawn to you. So I know there's a piece of that, you know, and I always say, if you're looking to get more involved, you know, someone's not just going to call you one day and say, Hey, join this board. Or we, we think you'd be great. You have to get out there, you know? And if you're, if you're, visible in terms of just, you can just be attending a networking event or, um, you know, someone invites you to something and you tag along, whatever opportunities come up that, you know, fit in your schedule. And I think those conversations often lead to something else. Um, one of the first opportunities that I had sitting on a board in the city was for the YPWA, Young Professional Women's Association of Worcester, which was a terrific experience. In fact, it's where I met Erin Jansky, and now we're on this board together, and um, many other um, people who now I consider very, you know, reliable colleagues, friends, and um, and so forth. So that was an opportunity that I think really came to me mainly because I was there, you know. I was going to the YPWA events as a member, and I found them you know, very enriching and very compelling and was having great conversations and it was a bit social and a bit professional development. And I think just being there, people said, well, geez, she's showing up and she's having conversations with people and introducing herself. And it wasn't like, I wasn't campaigning. I wasn't intending to be on the board at all at this point, you know, but um, when I was approached by the board at that time, several years ago, you know, now reflecting back, I I really think it was just 
they said, oh, geez, she's familiar and she's here and it seems like she's engaged and she cares about what we're doing. And one thing led to another and it, it ended up being a good fit. But I would say that in general for boards, you know, um, I think it's going to be hard to be recruited if you're not out there. And it doesn't mean that you can't reach out to an organization online, of course, or send an email. Or I would say if there's organizations that you really want to get involved in, the number one advice I always give to people is volunteer. Just volunteer. Look up, look them up online, give them a call, whatever, and find out what they're doing and how you can help with it and whether it's something small that you can do from home or your office or whether it's something you know bigger like with, with CASA where it might be a more substantial volunteer role, um, sort of just become part of the organization. You'll learn about it. You may learn it's not the right fit, and that's okay. Or you may learn it is, and that gives you sort of this this natural segue. You're meeting the staff. You may be meeting the executive staff, and you can begin to have conversations and see if there's opportunities and, and make yourself available for them if there are. And that's the number one thing I tell people. No one's going to call you. So you just have to get out there. And um, I, I genuinely believe volunteering is the first line of defense, whether you're, you know, just show up for an event or whether you're on a committee or whether, but these are the things that are going to lead to many other opportunities if you want them. And if you just want to be on a committee, that's great too. You know, I I think that's terrific. That's, there's a huge need for all types of volunteers, but that, you know, if that's really the end goal, I would say roll up your sleeve. Right. And people notice like people, especially an organization like this and certainly many others, their volunteers are so vital that they're being noticed, they're being appreciated, or at least they certainly should be. They are here at CASA, and I know in many other organizations as well, they couldn't do their work without them, and they really recognize that. And so if you sort of are one of those people that's being highlighted, we were I know you were just noticing on the website, we have a volunteer of the month, you know, and I'm sure it wouldn't be a stretch to say a volunteer of the month happened to have an interest and potentially a, a board position. What a obvious pool to dip into, right? It's people who already understand the mission and care a lot about it. So I'm not saying that's certainly not the only route, but I think it's one of the most natural, especially I would say for younger people. You know, I know when you get to a certain point in your career, you don't really have to worry about that. You might be approached more than you'd like to be. Um, and that's sort of a different, different phase of life, I guess. Um, and maybe then that's when you practice saying no, <laughs> but definitely when you're just starting to have these experiences younger in your career, builds credibility for sure. Definitely. And I saw you had an accolade for being an excellent volunteer for autism. Is that right? I yes, I was very involved in the autism community. I still spend um, you know Saturday mornings with one of my former students who you know had moved on to a private placement after. I had had him in the first grade, actually, and he's going to be 22 next month. Wow. So, yeah, so we spend our Saturday mornings together. But so, and he has autism, and it's still something that I care very deeply about. And um, we like to stay involved in the community as, you know, anytime I can. Yeah, making those connections and then just like sticking with them. Absolutely. It's just, it's yeah, so you never like, know. It enriches you, your life. Definitely. And meeting, Anyone you meet, you don't know who that will lead you to meet, you know, sort of through them. You know, I guess that's sort of the point of networking. But, you know, in a more, in a less formal way, just anyone that you interact with could lead to who knows what opportunity, you know, future career opportunity, volunteer opportunity. (laughs) 
Well, I saw that you had an opportunity to run Boston last year. Was that your first marathon? First and last. I was going to say, are you ever going to do it again? Yeah. Uh, Well, I've definitely said I wasn't going to do things before that I ended up doing down the road. And right now, definitely last marathon. Um, It was one of the greatest experiences of my whole life. But I'm very glad I did it. But it was also one of the hardest. And um, I did it specifically in memory of my uncle who passed away from ALS a couple years ago. And um, UMass Medical School, you may know, has some very significant research in neurodegenerative diseases and particularly ALS. So it was a very natural, the timing lined up. It's a program that I actually manage, um, our marathon charity fundraising program. And um, I'm glad I got that experience both for my team members now to kind of know how best to support them um, and what they are up against and, um, you know, how their April is going to look. But also, you know, it was obviously personal for me, too. So so it was uh, definitely something I'm glad I did. Can I ask you what you listened to? This is like my favorite. When people run marathons, I'm always like, what did you listen to? I am not going to be a good candidate. (laughs) I had, I worked for hours and hours. I did research on my playlist and I was talking to all these other runners, you know, and I had put together hours of running music and about a mile into the marathon, I literally ripped my headphones out and like didn't use them the rest of the race. It was such a interactive experience that I I felt like I was missing things and I wanted to just get the, I guess, all the immersive experience. So I ended up not listening to music the entire rest of the time. I think I did regret it like a little bit after mile 20. I might have liked to go back to my playlist for a little while and like checked out. But at that point, I was just kind of in that's my a zone. Good answer. I think that's <laughs> like you are it's a good candidate to answer that question. Yeah. Because it's like you want to feel you're like you're running the Boston Marathon, right? <laughs> did you listen to it? Uh, so I did New, New York, York City. Same experience afterward. I was like, I'm never doing this again. But now I'm like <laughs> kind of thinking about it. But I had a little iPod mini, like one oh of those God, tiny those ones, because I was thinking like, oh, you know, I, it'll be light. I won't have to carry it the whole time because I didn't bring my phone or anything. And you're traveling and you have to wake up at 4 a.m. and get on these buses and everything. And I go to turn on my headphones and it was dead. Oh, no. I thought I had charged all night, but I hadn't been plugged in all the way. So um, (laughs) I had to just enjoy the crowd. There you go. Oh, it, but like you said, it was such an experience. All these little kids giving you high fives. And it was just, the coolest. Yeah. yeah so that, the energy of it was definitely the best part. But oh no. <laughs> I know. I panicked. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. All these best too. laid plans, you know? Right? Well, yeah. the reason I ask is because I had a friend who ran Boston a couple years ago and he his like whole thing to motivate him was that he was going to do start to finish Bruce Springsteen's entire discography, <laughs> like in order. And he was like, yeah, I'm hoping to finish by like, he was, you know, like born wow. in the USA or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was very funny. Or like, I think he was like, like Tunnel of Love, one of the nineties albums. He's like, yeah, I'll get there. Yeah. During training, I definitely wouldn't have survived without music and podcasts, but, um, during the race. Yeah. It was yeah. different. It wasn't what I expected in that sense. That makes sense to me. I ran a 5K. <laughs> I ran a 5K. Yeah, you did. Last That's spring. Awesome. I did, yeah. 5Ks, I would say, are uh, more natural distance right. to run. Yes. But I was in part of it was I was coaching um, my elementary school girls. It was for a program called Girls on the Run. The girls on the Run. And, um, I love Girls on the Run. Yes, and it was so wonderful. And I remember thinking, I think, I don't even think I brought headphones with me because you have to be present for them. But that was like what made it the best experience. Like that's how I finished. That's how I finished a 5K was because <laughs> I was like, 
Cassie or whoever, yeah, you know, cheering like, on all the it. girls. Yeah. Right. And it was like, it was so special. And obviously it's not the same, but it really is that feeling of like, you're all doing this thing together. You're present. And it's like a crazy thing. Right. Oh, definitely. And I think depending on the race, of course, but I think races in general are pretty interactive, um, you know, whether it's spectators or fellow runners or whatever. So yeah, I think you do miss some of that if you, you know, are, and I know some people say like, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly, and I totally respect it, but (laughs) you definitely, I I think it's a different experience. And that actually was my experience when I ran a 5k with Sarah in the fall, I was planning on running with her husband (laughs) or walking Jasper. And then he like ditched me. He and then he actually ran. He was trying to raise his mom, who's yeah. almost 70. Yeah. And I think he's and like, like, wait a second, I can't let her be. His mom me. is amazing. But I didn't bring headphones on purpose because I was like, oh, I'll just hang out with him the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, dish me. So then I had to also be like very present. And I ended up meeting someone that we like interviewed the next week. Yeah. It was so Andrea. crazy. Andrea, that was yeah. really neat. Who you probably would have never spoken to exactly. if you had been listening to your yeah. tunes. She was like, exactly. we ran together. And I was like, yeah, we did. Because we were both like kind of in the same like jog, like light jog space. <laughs> she ran the whole time though, which was amazing. Like I was like taking walking breaks. I have long legs, so I'm very um, privileged in that sense. <laughs> Just like, yeah. Well, I listen to a lot of Taylor Swift when I run, and she just came out with a new video yeah. yesterday called I The heard. Man. I haven't seen it yet, but the song is fire. I haven't seen the video, but I have seen just like the still of her like standing looking at like an office window. Yeah, I just yeah. watched it right before I came here, and it's pretty wild. She's wearing prosthetics, and um, she's dressed up as Man Taylor, which is interesting because it's a unisex name. So, yeah, all I can. <laughs> imagine I just all I can think of is when Dana Carvey used to play George H.W. Bush I haven't seen her but like that's what I'm just imagining do you remember and he, like because she's like like she's not small she's tall but she's like you know petite like she still frame. has like yeah yeah very, like she's like in, and he's so tiny trim, and I'm feminine. just imagining yeah. him like in that like with the footy but it's stuff. great and the the image that sticks out the most to me is she goes to the park and she pretends to be like super dad but there's mm-hmm. all these moms working so hard to take care of their kids and then she just like has a kid lifts them up and everyone's fawning over yeah super like dad, dad you know yeah. but because it's the, all the moms don't get any dad's parenting well, yeah. it's like when yeah it's like when guys would be like i have to babysit my kids <laughs> like <laughs> that's you're not what parents. yeah, yeah. <laughs> your own children right <laughs> yes yep. i'm looking right now she does have a lot of it's crazy yeah she transformed she looks totally different mm-hmm. that's very cool But it reminded me a bit of a piece that we just worked on together for Worcester Business Journal, and we talked about kind of the third space, like spaces that don't necessarily have norms yet, and how we can navigate instances of sexual harassment or even just like uncomfortable situations with people in power who we have professional relationships with as well. I didn't know if you had had positive feedback or any fallout as a result of your participation in the story. Yeah, so all of the feedback I've gotten so far was overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly positive um, from both male and female uh, friends and and um, colleagues and people in my network. Really, the primary comment was just thank you for putting a voice to this. Or a lot of people said this is so relatable. And I know I was starting to tell you a story about a woman that I didn't know well, and she had said, you know, I was reading this, and it really brought me to tears, literally, because I just joined, uh, or I just um, started to oh, change industries, I should say, and it's a male-dominated industry now, and 
I just didn't know what I was getting into. And I was second guessing myself all the time and saying, have I made a huge mistake? And because of the things that we were talking about were, were happening to her. And she said, you know, I kind of just felt validated and um, empowered to just, and I don't want to put words words in her mouth, but I know um, she's just overwhelmingly positive and just saying, you know, kind of said, I can do this. And, you know, there's sort of, I want to say light at the end of the tunnel, but we're moving in the right direction. And these conversations are helping us sort of navigate these things together and not feel alone in them. And not that we want other people to experience them, but I think it does give you sort of, I guess, a little bit of a different type of energy when you approach it and say, oh, we're all kind of like experiencing this on some level. And everyone I talked to kind of had the same reaction where they had laughed off something that was uncomfortable instead Mm -hmm. of speaking up because they were afraid of being labeled as a troublemaker or they were afraid that they wouldn't get another opportunity at work as a result of speaking up when something was uncomfortable. And everyone also blamed themselves immediately and said, what did I do to make this guy think that it was okay to speak to me like that? Did I lead him on? Did I give him an indication I was interested? But nobody's first reaction was like, wow, he's wrong. (laughs) Right. Isn't that crazy? We, all of our minds go to like, was I being flirtatious by accident or, you know, did I come, come off a way that I didn't intend to or something? And instead of just being like, you know, actually they were just inappropriate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, that's pretty pretty much what it comes down to. (laughs) And it's in like, it's not just in workspaces where like both of the people are employees too. Like it's in those spaces where like there's a power, a separate power dynamic. Like I have been working in a restaurant, like serving. And one of my, one of my good friends like was serving a table. And one of the guys at the table just said something just so so like awful and gross to her. And she came back in the back room and she's like on the verge of tears. And it was, and I think she was having those feelings like where she's like, I'm just trying to do my job. Right. Like, could I have done something like, right. Literally. She's like, I'm just trying to do my job. And it was like, he was so gross. And so I went up to the table that he was at and just like glared. (laughs) I gave him like a death stare because I was like, you're a jerk. And in that case, I think it's okay to pass it off to somebody Mm -hmm. who's a higher pay grade Absolutely. than you, oh, especially yeah. in the service industry. Because yep. I can only imagine the and owner was, of your restaurant oh, yeah. tearing him to shreds. Yep. And it was, and she did too, which yeah. was great. And it's like, and I, but I have to wonder too, if there are some, like this particular place is pretty progressive in that way. Mm-hmm. And I have to wonder if there are some older fashioned like restaurant situations where they'd be like, well, you have to. This is Dude, customers always right, 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 right. Like your tip is on, like you know, right. something and like that. Fundraising, oh, sure. I imagine you face the same thing, and you talked mm-hmm. a little bit about this. But in fundraising, you know, you're dealing with people you inherently want money from. Absolutely right, and in a lot of cases, they know that. Yeah. So I think I know you had. I think we're, we're the one who first brought up that imbalance of power, and of course, it exists in many industries. But you know, service industry, it gets slammed with this stuff yeah somebody um reminded me of an article that I I did read and I think it's a little bit older but I believe it was um a female server and she had walked by this table and um the gentleman the customer was actually there with his partner or wife or girlfriend and he slapped her ass Mm -hmm. and she beat the crap out of him. <laughs> she had like, no choice. Yeah. beat the crap out of him? Good. I, <laughs> I mean, I don't condone violence, no, but, but like, I appreciate that. Yes. yes. And this is totally your instinct, and yeah. maybe if I was a little stronger. Self-defense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, 
I believe he, I don't remember if he sued her or the restaurant or something, but um, obviously the internet like destroyed him. Right, yeah. So, and rightfully so. Like, buddy, you asked for it. You know, I, I'm surprised that your wife didn't beat you up. Well, the last Maybe his I, skirt was really short. Yeah. He deserved <laughs> it. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to ask about was if you could just share your experience on LinkedIn, which kind of spurred this whole conversation to begin with. And you did you called someone out. You put them on blast on Facebook. Yes. Let's yes. It, I, you know, I wasn't looking to get anyone fired and I certainly could have reported them to their employer or something, but I thought it might actually be more impactful to, you know, spark that conversation, you know, with my own network. And I definitely did not think it would take off the way it did. But for those who haven't seen the post or read the article, someone that I didn't know on a professional, obviously, platform, LinkedIn, which is, I believe, only intended for professional conversations, reached out in a private message and and said, hello, gorgeous, how is your day, or something to that effect. And so I kind of shot back, you know, you got your apps mixed up. This isn't Tinder, it's LinkedIn. And then I ended up just blocking him. Um, I reported him just to LinkedIn, not to his employer, and then um, just blocked him. And But then, like you said, Sarah, I posted it on my Facebook page, kind of more just to, I guess, like, just to roast the guy a little bit. <laughs> um, but it kind of blew up. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of women said, like, this is so relatable. This happens all the time. But it was actually a little bit encouraging. And I, I think this has been part of the dialogue that I maybe didn't anticipate as much. A lot of guys were horrified, like shocked, you know, which is a little encouraging because, you know, they're like definitely not part of the problem in that case. But they were like, this happens. But I think that's just as important that their eyes are open to what we're experiencing. Because even if you're not part of the problem, and I am grateful that you're not, if you are one of those men who is shocked and horrified by these (laughs) interactions, that's great. You're not a creep. Congratulations. We love you. However, it's happening to women that you care about, you know, and I think that's just as important for them to be aware of. They're not feeling threatened. They're not feeling, um, like they need to be on the defense, but they should know that we are. Right. And it could also be like their friends. Exactly. Likely they, everyone probably has the creep friend. Exactly. Like it could be, it could be their brother, you know, right. like well, just because you're not part of the problem, but like collect your people, you know. As comforting as it was for men to say, this is horrifying. I cannot believe that somebody said that to you. On the flip side, so many women, and I went through and counted on your Facebook, oh you God. had 74 comments oh and seven God. women who said that has also happened to me. And after the story was published, I had a friend who sent me a screenshot. And she goes, oh my God, it's so funny. I just read your story and this happened to me this morning. It was somebody who said like, hey, gorgeous. You know, and it, it was, they were <laughs> pursuing her Loser. in a romantic way. And then I looked <laughs> a little closer and I knew the guy. Yeah. But it wasn't somebody, and she didn't know him, but it it wasn't somebody that I was surprised by at all because Mm. he had lost his position for the very same thing years ago and in a very public position, you know, it was all over the newspapers. And I'm like, this guy is still doing this. So these these are cycles, they're patterns. So that's also something I want to recognize that there are habitual offenders. And you said like, if he's doing this on LinkedIn, imagine what he's doing on Tinder. And hello, it is 2020 and there are platforms where you could say hello, gorgeous, and that would be appropriate, like a dating app. Right, or at least just not, like even if it was like Facebook, you could just be like, oh, I'm not interested because it's like a social app, you know? But like LinkedIn, what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. Like, but it's kind of to your point, I think if you're 
the type of problem that saying hello gorgeous on LinkedIn, I imagine you're probably not saying hello gorgeous on Tinder. You're probably being even more aggressive. Mm -hmm. And that's like the creepy part of it too. Cause that's likely if you think you can like prey on people on a professional platform, I'm guessing that's not like where you like contain your creepiness too, you know, this might, they might be the guys who are like slapping girls butts at restaurants, you know, totally. They, for some reason they feel this entitlement or, you know, I always wonder, I'm like, do you think, is there, did that ever work for you? You know, maybe it did. I don't know. But did someone say like, thanks for noticing? <laughs> What? My headshot was really, you know, glamorous. Absolutely. I also, right as we were having this conversation, you and I met up and we had coffee. That same week, the Dolly Parton meme went viral, which was like, consider your context. What does your picture look like on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Tinder? Tinder. It was Tinder. Some people, oh yeah, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Tinder. And some people, did you notice on some of them, like Sesame Street did it and they changed Tinder to like some, one of the other ones. It was so cute. I was like, I love this. But I thought that was a great way to illustrate the point that you really do need to think about your context. Yeah. It was and it, terrific. Right. And yeah. it, it literally illustrated it. Like I think it was a visual mm-hmm. illustration of there are things that you wear to certain things. There's music Absolutely. you like. And I think you said this, you know, to end the article, there's a playlist. goes back to writing playlists. <laughs> yeah. There's playlists for, for different parts of your day or your life or depending on who you're around, you know? Right. If I'm going out dancing with my ladies, I'm going to listen to something totally different than when I'm riding in the car with my boss. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. You know, correct. And it's not that different than, you know, my, I, I always say, maybe this is, sounds a little youthful, but more than I am, but, (laughs) um, I have my going out clothes, which these days don't look that different than my going to work clothes. Mine are the same and I don't know what to do with it. Republic and nowhere else, but but yeah, in theory, the going out yes, wardrobe. Yes, you would not wear the same thing. There's, it's very rare that you have the same outfit for a weekend event that you have for you know a, a meeting or an interview or something. And there's a reason for that. You know, it's sort of the vibe you're trying to give and the impression you're making. And I think that's supposed to be intentional. One of my favorite things on the office is when Dwight like complain that the office that the, the people who worked in the office weren't like dressing well enough so Jim came to work the next day in a tuxedo right when the new the new boss came who was like who really wasn't gonna take any crap from anyone and he was like why are you wearing that and he tried to explain why he wore it and Charles who was the new boss just like did not he was so he's blank but it's like exactly like in the context of that particular you know fictional office it was a good joke but like this guy is coming from outside and he's like what is wrong with you right like you're not wearing what you would wear in this environment right (laughs) which can go either way he just happened to do it in the way that most people usually kind of go the other direction with it (laughs) pulled out the tux uh, the greatest show you you brought up Harry Potter today, but like before we even asked about it. But we were also um, discussing how one of your like top people to have dinner with would be J.K. Rowling. Do you have a house? Um, I do not have a house. You got to get one. I'm a Ravenclaw. What are you, Sarah? I think I'm Hufflepuff. I think you are too. No, Hufflepuff I know. is good. My mom's a Hufflepuff. Yes. Hufflepuff are loyal. They are. Loyal and kind to all. Um, but yeah, I had to ask. <laughs> I need to be sorted. Yeah. You need to be sorted. Yeah. I got sorted by Pottermore, which yeah, was written by J.K. Rowling. I used it for that. And then I was like, okay, I don't have time to do this. No. 
I have to be honest, I have a little anxiety around getting sorted because like, I think you picture yourself a certain type of way and then you're like, but what if that's not right? how I'm sorted? Yeah. Oh yeah, I aspire to be Gryffindor all day. Right. Yes. Like, if you ask me what is your house, I would just tell you Gryffindor, but that's where I've sorted myself. <laughs> Much like Harry did. It's also like right. the book, right? <laughs> I feel I, I always considered myself a Ravenclaw because <laughs> I like like crossword puzzles. And it's so funny, though. So, you know, obviously this is not real, but obviously. So I did that whenever Pottermore came out, like I think I was maybe at the end of college or something. And I remember I sorted myself. Right. I was like, yeah, I'm a Ravenclaw. So I took the like test that like she wrote herself and that she wrote like the letter that you get after. And it turned out that not only was I a Ravenclaw, like from my thoughts from the book, but I was like even more of one when I read it later. So it was like, you have, um, you have eclectic interests and you are like, you have a good sense of humor. And I was like, this is me. I make jokes and I listen to classical music. And you love figure skating. Yeah. And I love figure skating. I was like, yeah, I do have eclectic interests. I'm weird. It's perfect. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was cool totally. though because it was like these extra details that like you don't get just from reading it. Totally. I would I would do that over like a personality test any day. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. I had fun. <laughs> yeah, forget that Myers Briggs or whatever. Right. <laughs> I am an INFJ though. To be if anyone's like using this in their office and wants to hire me. <laughs> That's my I have some homework to do. <laughs> I did it one I did one of the free ones. I'm sure it's not real. I if it was from BuzzFeed, it's real, and I believe it. <laughs> I think I just Googled it one day. I think I just, like, wanted to. I think people were talking about it a lot on Tumblr at, like, a time that I was, like, very into Tumblr. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm going to do it, too. And now the new one is, like, Enneagrams. Like, I have to, like, get my Enneagram number. It's, like, one through nine. You're, like, a – it's the same thing. It's, like, a personality type. And I'm like, well, I have no idea. All right. Everyone has homework. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about myself. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, this has been lovely. Thank you. You mm-hmm. are like Hermione Granger with her time turner. I don't know how you are everywhere at once. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah, but you're doing such wonderful things for the community, and we appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, we, uh, I think we at Casa, but also just, you know, I think you probably both know I'm wild about Worcester, and I know you both are too, which is why you do this, um, which is I think really cool. So thank you so much for having me. Well, I have been Sarah. I have been Molly. And this is Pop It. Pop It.